0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and it is not uncommon for uh, well to do families to have small businesses. Those small businesses oftentimes are meant to exist beyond the life of one human being. And in that case, you have to do some sort of planning to figure out how that transition is going to happen. I guess you could do no planning, and then that's sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But usually it's better if you do some planning. So, to help me with that, is my friend, Gray Edmondson. Gray is a partner in Oxford, Mississippi. He's an ACT Tech fellow, which basically means he cannot keep his mouth shut about these sorts <laughs> of topics. That's
1: right, Brent. Thank you. Glad to be here and excited to talk about, uh, you know, business planning issues.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit, uh, or for me and people who maybe don't have the the skinny on Oxford, Mississippi and the practice of law there what are things like there? How did you end up there? What is your practice like?
1: Sure, yeah. You know, Oxford, Mississippi sits in, in the very uh, far northern part of the state, uh, just a little bit south of Memphis for people who, who are unfamiliar with the geography of Mississippi, which probably is the majority of folks out there. And so, um, you know, we, we sort of sit, we get asked all the time, were you guys on the Gulf Coast or are you guys, you know, by Jackson or whatever. We're, we're really right close to Memphis, Tennessee more than we are anywhere else. And it's a small college town. Yeah, Ole Miss, University of Mississippi sits here. And so a large part of our community is, is revolves around the university and, and businesses that serve students and faculty and staff and those kind of things. And that's a large part of our economy here. So that, that a lot of that drives the practice. You've got a lot of industry here that pulls from uh, the university that is founded by uh, university faculty and staff. And um, it's a good place to work. I mean, frankly, in the area where we serve, uh, you know, tax and and business closely held business representation trust and estate planning there's not a lot of professional uh, services offered really in our footprint uh, where we sit sort of just, like i said just south of memphis and and a couple hours north of jackson mississippi our state capital and between the two there's just our, our sort of geography is underserved by the work we do so we're in a unique position to be able to really serve clients in a way that they're don't have a lot of other options.
0: Yeah, it's that's a interesting comment because I um, I end up doing work for clients in more rural parts of my state. I and mean, to be rural in in my part of this of the world is like you just went outside the city limits because beyond that is just like vast. It's just like vast seas of sand and rock and bushes. But um, a lot of those communities are very similar. They don't have a lot of good professional services. They're very underserved. But all of the legal issues are identical. The need is identical.
1: Well, that's right. And we see a lot of clients who come in and and, um, that we meet with who have had some level of the work we do handled by a an attorney at some point but oftentimes that attorney was their local attorney uh, either in our town or somewhere that's an hour away that we're we're working with them and it's their attorney who's also sort of the municipal judge you know part-time and handle their kids dui and mm-hmm. you know this kind of thing mm-hmm. and, and they're also handling their their uh, business succession and trust and estates planning, right? And that um, might have carried them through to a very certain limited point, but their needs, as you said, are, are more like needs of any other business owner in, in a larger community that that might have access to more robust sort of sophisticated planners.
0: Yeah. Well, tee that up just a little bit then, as far as the the profile of clients and how. How these issues pop up in your practice?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, right before we got started, I was just explaining to you. I mean, our, our client base is primarily closely held business owners. Not that we don't have some clients who who aren't closely held business owners, but that's the predominant client base we work with. And that's really because the the suite of services we as a as a group offer, and I'm sure you know no, no different, really fit those those clients better than than anyone else. From You know, the the tax and and business entity and structural planning from the asset protection issues that business owners are concerned about to their own trust and estate planning that oftentimes devolves from the value of their family business, throwing them into taxable estate territory. So, you know, we really can serve them across that whole area of their lives in a way that, you know, other clients might not need. You know, one client might come in and need a, a, a trust prepared to own a life insurance product or something like that, but maybe that's one and done. You know, and, and business owners need a lot more of, of what we do on a more ongoing basis. And so those businesses we see range anywhere from professional practices to a manufacturer. Uh, there's a lot of furniture manufacturing and other manufacturing in our footprint, as well as uh, franchise uh, franchisees that might own a restaurant chain or a car dealership or something like that, where they're working with a franchisor. So it really, you know, can be any number of different types of industry. And they each present different issues, but I would say the overwhelming majority of issues they present aren't that different, right? I mean, who's going to manage if you can't manage? Is your family right. interested in taking over if something happens to you? What's the value of your business and how do we maximize that if you're going to sell? And, you know, how do we plan for the impact of this on your um, taxable estate and, and what are the ongoing year-over-year tax issues? And all of those are, are not unique to any one industry or another.
0: Yeah, that is certainly true. The the nuances of each industry, of course, are unique, but the overall structure is is very similar, whether you're dealing with somebody that's a farmer or somebody that's a franchise or franchisee or somebody that, you know, they started something from scratch. It's really, to your point, who's going to take over the ownership and who is going to take over the operations? Sometimes that means you sell the business. Is there isn't the right person.
1: That's right. And, and one of the things I lead off that conversation with with every client that's a closed held business owner that we're sort of starting the process is, you know, what's going to happen to your business when you leave it? Are you going to sell it to a third party? Are you going to transition it internally to an existing um, employee that's going to be a key employee that takes over? Is it going to be family? And that can look any number of ways. Uh, ownership and management cannot be the same. Uh, ownership can even be split between financial ownership without voting control. Right and, and voting control. But oftentimes what I hear back is well, I don't intend to leave, right? I'm gonna work here. This is where this is what I've grown, this is what I'm gonna do. And and you know, my response oftentimes is back, Well, you're going to leave. You you're not going to one
0: way or another. <laughs> right.
1: You won't spend perpetuity in your business, right? I mean, you're you're gonna, you know, die, you're gonna become incapacitated, the right buyer is gonna come along and offer you something. I mean, you know something's going to happen where you're going to leave your business one way or the other. So you can either take control of the process and plan for that um, and hopefully intentionally set up a structure that's going to maximize your success, or you can put your head in the sand and say, I guess I'm just here forever. And when that day comes, just cross your fingers, it all works out. And sometimes it may, but we all know the statistics about how rare that is.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting um, psychological experiment because often times in my uh, in the case of my clients they've they've gotten to where they are because they were always opportunistic and they they were always sort of positioning themselves to be able to take advantage of opportunities as they arose in the operation of the business and that's how the business became successful but on the succession planning side of things they don't want to be as opportunistic probably because it's slightly depressing to think about dying and becoming incapacitated and not being in the business anymore and And so I think there's just a really strange human behavioral psychological experiment that's happening when you're talking to clients about those issues that they're working through and you're trying to help them work through.
1: That's right. And some of the same psychological issues that we encounter with business succession planning clients are, are again, not unique to industry. and, And we see it repeatedly deal with a need to maintain control, fear over what happens if I leave, right? I, you know, and, and this sort of—I don't know if it's an ego or if it's, you know, what it is—but this business couldn't survive without me. I know all the customers. I've been doing this for 40 years. No one else is going to have that information and knowledge and relationship source, you know. So this, this fear, this anxiety about what's going to happen, this need to maintain control—that has sort of psychological elements to it. But you know, I try to segue that oftentimes in conversation and you can maintain control if you take control of the succession process, right? If you don't, you lose control over what happens when you're no longer around. You've lost control.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. And that's exactly right. It's you. You can build in control. In fact, we could, you know, you and I could put our heads together and come up with 15 different ways that we could structure something where they have total control, even if it looks like they don't have control. We could have ways that they could pull the ripcord at any moment and still have control if that's what somebody wants.
1: Well, that's right. And, and there's day-to-day operational control to your point, but there's also just control over the process of what happens, right? What happens when I die? What happens? How how might a, a outside buyer's transaction look? If you start seizing control of the way you work on your business now and work on your planning now to achieve that future outcome, you're going to have a lot more control over how that future outcome looks than if you just ignore it or put your head in the sand or think I'm doing everything right, you know, it'll all work out. All of a sudden, those events occur and you've lost all of the benefit of having had some control over what happens when you get there.
0: Right. And and I
1: I sometimes refer mm to it as the difference in working on your business versus in your business yeah Uh, i see a lot of business owners who uh and and understandably so i'm sure you and i experience this at our jobs every day too you you get in every day and your to-do list is pages long and you know you're you're probably some point early in the day going to get pulled off into something that wasn't on your to-do list and and you're stressed about constantly being able to get your day-to-day business done so you're too busy working in your business every day to step aside and work on your business. And I yeah. think one of the impediments we see is just, I've got too much to do to focus on this right now. Let's wait six months and read, circle up. Well, then you meet, nothing happens again because the next crisis at work is is in its midst, right? And getting the, across the importance of stepping aside and stop working in your business for a minute and let's work on your business, I think is an important part of the conversation from where I sit.
0: It is, and I, I have a few little uh, tricks for that. <laughs> Most of them are are things that I have learned for myself that then I am <laughs> I impose on other people. One of the tricks is for I know for me to that exact point of like I get so busy and I I don't have time to focus on a lot of the things that I need to try to get done that are on this long ever evolving list of mine is I just have to put things on a, on my calendar and for some reason if it's on my calendar I feel like uh, the calendar dictates exactly what i have to do and i can't do something contrary to what's on the calendar there's something psychological about it so i'll i'll force that onto clients too i'll say well (laughs) let's just get something on your calendar that's right and it will force them to show up and talk about some topic for 30 minutes or 60 minutes
1: well i tell you i've got a client to that point who's done a really good job of and i tell a lot of my clients who who own evolving larger closely held businesses that we probably should get together every year and talk about your planning um just what's changed who, what kids have, of yours have become more involved in the business, what's happened valuation-wise, you know, those kind of things. Um, but this particular client has, has taken that a step further, and we have a standing quarterly meeting that sits on both of our calendars, and not just ours. Their CPA comes, their banker comes, the CFO of the business is there. And we all have a standing quarterly meeting and we just get together and talk through business planning issues that has nothing to do with what's going on with customer A or customer B or, you know, this employee has just quit and how are we going to fill that spot? It's more high level uh, strategic type planning that we get together and meet quarterly and I'll give our input and I'll take home projects that are there to help the business thrive and grow and be prepared for what's next and so having that on mm-hmm. the calendar if it wasn't there and we just said we should get together periodically it may not happen right
0: yes and i learned that trick from another lawyer by the way that's not my <laughs> brilliant idea i i stole it from another lawyer who uh i had been working with and that was what he would always do and i thought man that's really smart he was much older than i was so he he had a few years of experience figuring this little thing out if so, i want to hit you with a few kind of rapid fire things yeah. here, if that's okay so all right let's say you you mentioned uh, selling the business to employees. What are kind of some of the, the high level issues that that triggers in your mind when somebody says, well, I just wanna sell this to my employees?
1: Yeah, and, and I think uh, there are a lot of issues that you get there too on on selling to employees. Some are operational, some are tax related, right? So some of the operational aspects of that is what what's your family? I mean, do, do you have family that works in the business? Are they now gonna work for this employee? if you sell to this employee from a valuation perspective oftentimes you want to give a favorable deal to this employee because they, you might feel like that you know or, or the conversation we often have is you feel like they have grown the value of the business the business wouldn't be worth if it wasn't what it, well, if it wasn't for their efforts and so you want to give them sort of a sweetheart deal which maybe is a good thing but what does that do for your future financial planning right does that put enough money in your pocket what risk are you taking if you sell seller finance to them on preferable terms they don't succeed right and all you hold is a note written by someone who is now unable to pay you know all of these sort of operational issues but then there's also the tax side right if you give them the sweetheart deal have you given them a sale for less than fair market bay and there's going to be a compensation element there what are your tax consequences going to be and 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 you know, can you capture that all as capital gains if you don't and you're going to have some ordinary income? You know, what are the give and take aspects on that? And so, you know, you really have to deal with both the family side of the planning, valuation side, tax for both you and the employee. And that's income tax and sort of where it fits into your gift and estate tax plan as well. And, and then your financial planning aspects, like I said, and, and overall risk there. Because if, if you're oftentimes these insider deals we find are seller financed. Of course, not always, but often if you're taking a risk on them being successful to pay that that uh, seller financing back, you know, what happens if that doesn't pan out or what happens if you do have to renegotiate? And, and some of those risk and financial planning aspects are part of it, too.
0: Yeah, you. Well, thanks. Thanks. Because you just made what sounded like a really simple solution very complicated. <laughs> this, is this what you do?
1: <laughs> well, we, we try to keep it simple, but, you know, we, you don't want to. sort of create a problem for your clients by not being aware of some of the landmines that are out there, right? And so oftentimes those landmines are easy to knock down, right? What's the family dynamic here? Oh, my family's all moved off. None of them even work in this industry. I've got to sell it while I'm alive anyway, because they're never going to take it over. Okay, well, that's easy, right? So oftentimes as we sort of work through the punch list of some of these items, they really get narrowed down to where only one or two really require any true head time, right?
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. I kid, of course. Uh, These things are very (laughs) complicated. Um, My clients often look at me doughy eyed after or or uh, deer eyed after I explain the (laughs) issues. Like, what did I just ask? Um, Okay, so let's say somebody. uh, Oh, sorry. I was going to add one one other thing to the the list of um, challenges that you were just listing off. There are two things that come up in that circumstance that I think, uh, at least for me, my clients tend to forget about. The first is that if it's a business that runs on leverage or lending, there are often lending agreements and guarantees that are personal to the business owner, and it's really not practical without a lot of thinking to shift that on to the employee because they don't have the net worth to be able to carry those notes. So you really have to think about how are you going to be able to work that out with the lenders? Because it's not always as clear cut as you might think. It's not just like snapping a finger and then it's done. So you may, you know, the owner may have to guarantee some loans for some period of time to make a a lender happy. The other is oftentimes those deals, at least in concept, are going to be funded through life insurance. Uh, It could be life insurance on the life of the employee, in which case you have to give certain notices to make sure it's going to get tax favorable treatment, but if it's going to be life insurance on the on the life of the business owner, now the employee is going to have to generate enough cash from the business to cover that life insurance policy, which can be a real drag on the business depending on the, the health and age of the owner. So those issues, they seem kind of simple to solve, but when you really get into the details, they're really not that easy.
1: Well, that's right. And I'll say, you know, sort of a couple of those points. One is on, on the insurance side and cash flow, That got that's exactly to my point on valuation and trying to give a sweetheart deal or preferable terms to an employee, because what you don't often want to do and and employees wouldn't often be willing to buy into is a pay cut as a result of their buy in. Right. So somehow this buy in has to get structured very often in a way that they receive distributions from the business. They bought sufficient to cover a note back to you, life insurance premiums tax obligations, all of these aspects, while still netting them as much or more take-home pay as they had before, because if they're going to have to take a a pay cut to make this work, maybe they can't. Maybe the whole metrics don't work for them, and this key employee that was really your succession plan, you've put in a place where they can't make it work, right? And so that sort of running some calculations to make sure that you can cash flow this in a way that they can put food on the table for their family and continue to to live the way they've they've become accustomed while still keeping the business owner secure is often a challenge and on the debt side I'll say that's that's really present in even family transitions in, in addition to third party transitions one of the conversations we have all the time is your senior generation that's built up a substantial net worth suddenly dies and they're the guarantor bank is uh, making these large business loans based on their guarantee and the strength of their personal balance sheet when they die in their family business splits up between three and four kids who are younger and don't have that balance sheet that they've got and there's a big capital call, what's gonna happen?
0: Yep. It's uh it's it's a really sensitive conversation too. Oftentimes those lending contracts will say death is a default or death without adequate Adequately replacing the guarantor is a default on the note. And so, although it seems really harsh, that is actually quite quite the industry standard in lending, at least as far as I can tell. So you have to be aware of that issue when you're starting to plan the succession. And, and you know, if you're going to be using trust, for example, you got to have trusts that allow for that kind of guarantee on the on the trust assets those sorts of things thinking forward about that issue because you know at some point when somebody passes away there was a big guarantor the bank is going to come back looking for another pocket
1: that's right and you can understand why the the lender has that you know they're they're loaning money for example to an operating business that might not have a a whole lot of assets to offer as collateral or or even if they do have you know very valuable equipment to offer as collateral that's those are depreciating assets right and so the strength of that guarantee is what is securing that loan. And and when that guarantor dies and, and their their assets get divvied up among family members and trusts and the, and tax obligations and, and these kind of things, they're insecure at this point They they need to find a new a new guarantor, a new collateral that gets them secure. They're going to have to call the loan.
0: Yep. All right. Let me give you another uh, scenario in this case. Uh, there are multiple owners of the business and they say, well, we'll just have a we'll just have a buy sell or what they call a buy sell between us. And so if one of us dies, then the others will buy that person out, et cetera. What, what about that situation?
1: Well, you know, first first out of the gate, I think if they're having that conversation, good. Right? Mm-hmm. At, at least mm-hmm. at some level, they're thinking about what happens when one dies or 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 one decides to leave or becomes incapacitated or whatever, which often has business owners are too busy thinking about what's right in front of their nose to get to those conversations. So, first of all, good. Right. Um, But beyond that, and and that may be true, but, uh, you know, how is it going to get funded? How is it going to get valued? Do you want to be in business with their family if it's not a death, Uh, if it's an incapacity or a divorce or, or what may have you? So, yeah, the three main things I try to tell people we've got to think through on buy sell planning are really simple three concepts, but underneath them you can get really complicated, and it's, it's really easy. Triggering events, right? What's going to trigger a right or obligation to buy or sell, and that could be death is the obvious, right? But voluntary, you just decide I want to move to the sure. beach or whatever, and I'm out, right? Sure. Incapacity, you know, things like that valuation, are you going to use a formula to value it? Is it going to be a stated value you attach every year, which they never do? Is it going to be an appraisal? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then how are you going to pay for it? Right. How are you going to fund all of this? Are you going to buy life insurance? If so, how is that going to be owned and structured? Are you going to sell or finance to each other? you know, if you got a three or four owner business, what if two of them die in the same accident and the other two having to buy both out at the same time? Can they cash flow these things? You know, I mean, so, you know, but the three buckets are just triggering events, value
0: and funding as far as I sit. Right, right. <clears throat> I agree. I think I would, I would add to the list of, well, is that, is that outcome the one you want? And the question I often ask those clients is, well, we can we can obviously structure it that way. You know, we can, you and I again we can come up with 15 different ways to write that to structure it. No problem there. But at the end of of the chronology of those documents, effectively what it says is the person who survives get it, gets everything. Is that the goal or is that the right. intent? And oftentimes I think people forget that element of buy sells of that nature. It's just by by accident of of uh, of death, whenever that happens to happen, the survivor is going to get everything. Some people say, no problem. We don't care. And well, which is great. But if that's the outcome they want, then that plan works. If that's not the outcome they want, then you have to find some other way to do it.
1: Well and, and I find similar to that conversation when you talk about the big picture goal as opposed mm-hmm. to the mechanics of a buy-sell arrangement, one of the things we see is oftentimes separating operating from non-operating assets. Like you, yeah. you know, very often the let's just call it a manufacturing plant, whatever, the family who doesn't work there and the spouse who doesn't work there day to day may not need to have any ownership after the first dies and may not need to have anything any risk on the ongoing uh, success of the business either but they may own the real estate on which the business sits and it may be appropriate to uh, transition ownership of the operating business to the to the owner who's going to be active there all day every day while pulling out the real estate and having that retained by family to provide an asset that's growing in value, that can produce cash flow through rents, those kind of things. So separating, say, real estate is a common example from the operating business can help sort of achieve a way to balance those goals.
0: Yeah, that's a really excellent uh, tidbit. So there are there are many ways to kind of slice and dice that situation to really get it customized down to exactly what people want. You got to have the conversation first. But once you can really narrow in on what it is that they want and and uh, the outcomes that they want, then, of course, people like Gray are able to structure it. So, OK, so how about the scenario where uh, it's a business owner, say it's just a single single owner, mom and dad, maybe, and they say, Look, we have three kids. Two of the kids want nothing to do with the business, quote unquote, Uh, but the third kid is working in the business and he or she is doing great and we really want to turn over the keys to that child.
1: Yeah, and and that's probably, I'd say, one of the more common scenarios we face. Um, It's either no kids work in the business we're going to have to sell to an outsider at some point or some, but not all of our children, are are full-time in the business and and need to to take this over. And so very often in family health, businesses that business represents the larger part of the net worth of the family right so it's real easy to knee-jerk and say we're going to equalize i'll give cash to this child and the business to that child if there's cash there great but maybe if that's the goal there needs to be uh, life insurance or something like that to allow equalization to be part of the plan and equalization may not even be fair Right, and I tell clients there's equal and there's equitable, and they're not the same. Um, it may well be that that child who helped grow the family business and and came in and worked nights and weekends and took ownership and and made some family sacrifices at home to allow the value to be what it is doesn't need to be equalized necessarily on on dollars with that other family member. Um, if if the goal is to be equal, right? So let, let's just think about what equal means, right? Does equal mean we value the business at X dollars, then we give X dollars cash to the the other children, right? Or does it mean we we bring in some concepts of equity and what that might look like? The other thing is, aside from valuation and equalization too, is at what level do you want to give the non-active family members a continuing role in the business or continuing ownership? Because you either can't equalize or you want to provide their children the opportunity to work in the business. If the grandchildren one day grow up and decide they want to be a part of it, how do you sort of maintain uh, the integrity of the family member who's there day-to-day and their ability to control and maintain the business free from interference by the non-active ch- children, right, while still giving the non-acting ch- non-active children the right to participate? And so yeah. maybe that's voting and non-voting interests. Maybe it's a a call option, for example, for the one that's active, that if a a sibling becomes troublesome, um, they've got terms, they can call those interests and buy them out. Uh, Maybe it's appointment of, say, a business advisory board or something like that that's non-family members that assist with overseeing what's happening so that they can be sort of a a neutral source if the family gets into disputes. You know, we see the non-active children who get, say, non-voting interests Mom or dad dies and they see their sibling who works in the business every day, all of a sudden buy a new house and buy a new car and start taking fancy vacations and say, I can't afford to make distributions this year. They start wondering what's going on, right? Understandably. Right. On the other hand, the one who is active starts getting harassed with wanting monthly financial reporting and explanation of every line item. And I can't run the business if I'm spending my whole time you know, fielding uh, demands from my siblings who aren't here every day. And so how do you right. make all of that work, Right.
0: It's a it it is a true balancing act. I I have yet to find the one right answer uh, <laughs> no, in that we have situation. A lot
1: of, we got a lot of tools in our toolbox, right? And, sure. and, and you know we can we can buy some insurance to to create some some uh, liquidity to either equalize or provide liquidity to fund puts or calls if they're part of a plan using you know family put options and call options as part of a family buy sell arrangement using non voting interests, you know using non family board uh members or a trustee that has a, a directed uh you know advisor out there that can direct uh, voting at the business interest to by someone who's who's unbiased right um you know we got a lot of tools in the toolbox none of it's perfect right but but you got to look at the family and what the overall goals are and what the family dynamics are and try to pick out the right combination of tools in the toolbox to make it
0: work right i think that's right and it's a it's a it's a situation where you have to be very open or the client needs to be very open about the dynamics of the family and the characters involved and the trust involved between family members, understanding that those sorts of things can change over time. And then from there, you can start to build a structure. You mentioned a couple of them. You know, you could create voting and non-voting stock. You could equalize with cash. You could create some sort of sort of board of advisors that's somewhat more neutral at insulates the ownership from the operation of the business. There's, you know some third party and in, in between the family and and say the ground floor of the manufacturing plant and all of those can be right in the correct circumstances but it that's all right. depends and, on the family
1: that's right and and you know no two families and no two businesses are exactly alike so you just sort of got to work with sort of picking that like I said picking the right tools out of the toolbox now say that's not just for families where you have one child who's active in the business and, and the rest aren't sometimes you have multiple family members active in the business but one is the sort of natural heir apparent and one uh, maybe shows up most days but doesn't uh, have the work ethic let's say of the other and how do you compensate the two maybe if they feel like they're both showing up to work every day and both you know the children of the original business owner that they're entitled to equal compensation and equal ownership and this kind of thing when everyone who is objective can see otherwise and and how do you manage that dynamic as well I mean it's all sort of issues to deal with
0: yeah Absolutely. Well, uh, that was a lot of really, really, really good information. Uh, So, for anybody listening who was hoping that they would get some sort of masterclass on how to do buy sells, everything that Gray just mentioned was was absolutely spot on. Um, Greg, if people are trying to find you, what is the best way for them to find you?
1: Yeah, I think probably the best way is just to navigate to our firm's website. And from there, we'll have contact information. And that website is esapllc.com.
0: All right, pretty simple. And we'll add your contact information in the show notes too, so people can find you there. But I just, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule that we just discussed to do this with me.
1: Glad to do it. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at Wealth and Law. I'll see you there.